2: I'm John Dankowski. The numbers are really shocking when you look at them. Twenty percent of women have reported being sexually assaulted on college campuses over the past four years. It's been called an epidemic, and many states are trying to solve the problem by pushing for affirmative consent, changing the parameters of consensual sexual encounter from no means no to yes means yes. But practically, how does this work? Meanwhile, there's growing evidence that the real way to reduce sexual violence on campus is actually more education earlier in life. You can join this conversation. What are your thoughts about affirmative consent laws? What do you see in the climate of college campuses? We would love to hear from you, especially if you are on a college campus today, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Coming up, we'll hear from a survivor of childhood sexual abuse who has written about her recovery. Uh, joining us today in studio is Greg Haddad, who is a state representative, uh, currently serving as deputy majority leader. He co sponsored an affirmative consent bill we'll be talking about. And, uh, Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here.
1: It's a pleasure to be
2: here. Also with us is Elizabeth Conklin, who is Associate Vice President of the Office of Equity and Diversity and the Title IX Coordinator at the University of Connecticut in Stores. Elizabeth, thank you for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: And, Kellen Kavanaugh is a clinical mental health counselor at Loomis Chafee School. And, uh, Kellen, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks. It's great to be here.
2: Um, Greg, I want to start with you. You were one of the co-sponsors of of an affirmative consent bill that was introduced last year. Uh, It did not pass, but it's going to be raised again. Can you explain a little bit about what uh,
1: this bill would do? Sure. Uh, The bill uh, requires all colleges and and universities in Connecticut to use an affirmative consent standard when determining uh, or adjudicating a, a case Uh, If there's a complaint of a sexual assault on the college campus, it's important to know that what we're talking about is what is uh, the, we're asking them to use affirmative consent to determine whether or not a student has violated their own student code of conduct. Um, And uh, we're not talking about criminal cases here. But I think that this is important um, because, um, you know, increasingly what we're trying to do as a legislature, and I think what, what activists on campus are trying to do, is to try to change the culture on campus from, uh, from a no-means-no culture where uh, it's an obligation of a, of a young man or a woman to say no um, to one where it's, uh, we're obliging or adding the responsibility to both actors to agree before they engage in sexual activity um, that that's what they want to do. So this would be for college campuses? College campuses. What's the, what's the law for everyone who's not on a college campus? Um, well, I mean, we have you know, all sorts of sexual assault uh, laws and, um, and uh, you know, we know that that's a problem there too. Um, uh, what's, what's different about a college campus I think um, is that it's a lot like um, you know, workplace laws. We're trying to create an environment where people can learn and learn well. And so we've added the responsibility and, uh, to colleges and universities to make sure that the environment is one that's conducive for learning. Um, and it's hard if, if you're facing repeated sexual uh, harassment or assault um, on college campus. It's hard to learn. Um, and so we, we've set the standard a bit different um, for colleges and, and universities. Uh, you bring up something that we've talked about on the program quite a bit
2: over the years, and it is this issue that um, issues of sexual violence are often adjudicated on college campuses in a different way than they would be in the general public, right? There's uh, there's different rules surrounding it. Sometimes there's different reporting requirements. Uh, can you talk that through a little bit in some of the decisions that you're making in putting forward this legislation? Because there have been some controversies about whether or not someone who, say, is sexually assaulted or uh, feels as though they've been sexually assaulted on a college campus like the University of Connecticut, whether or not they should go to university officials or they should go to the local police and make it a criminal matter. Can you talk about how how you and the lawmakers you're talking with are thinking through those problems? Sure.
1: Um, Look, I mean, from my perspective, I think what we we need to do is put uh, the person who 's been assaulted um, in control of the situation, and there are a lot of different remedies um, to make him or her feel better about um, uh, about how to move forward. Um, they have the choice really of of going to their own school or university and filing a complaint there or going to the police or both um, and it 's important I think that uh, victims of of assault and and crime have that uh, ability as a practical matter, um, uh, you know it 's difficult sometimes to um, uh, to convict somebody uh, in a court of law, and uh, at the same time, um, you, colleges and universities have disciplinary procedures that they can use um, that will help make sure that the victim um, can move forward and doesn 't have to sit next to or live in the same dorm. Um, with uh, somebody who she or he alleged, per, you know, assaulted her. Um, uh, and I think that that's important that we have all of those tools at our disposal. And so I'm a member of the Higher Education Committee. We we focus pretty exclusively on on how colleges and universities respond, um, and that's one of the reasons why I, um, I co-sponsored this bill.
2: And, and just one last thing, when you're talking about this law and practicality, uh, if, if it uh, – actually is voted on and becomes the law of Connecticut. Does this have to do with
1: public institutions, private institutions as well, all colleges in the state? Yeah, I I would say back in 2014, we passed a pretty comprehensive law that uh, overhauled the way both private and public colleges deal with uh, uh, sexual assault, stalking, intimate partner violence. Um, And we we require both reporting um, to the General Assembly from both public and private universities – um, um, and and this is an extension of that. So this is one of those unfinished little tasks, I think, um, a, a clear definition of consent that we're adding to the work that we've already done in 2014, but it would apply equally to all institutions. Elizabeth Conklin, does, uh, does a legal change like this
2: that's being proposed here, does this make sense?
3: Yeah, you know, I think at UConn we've had an affirmative consent standard in place since about 2002, and we've found that this is a really important piece of our student conduct code and of our definitions for sexual violence on campus because it really sets the standard on campus for an active yes means yes consent standard for students. And I think in addition to how that plays out when complaints are brought, I'd also highlight that affirmative consent is a really powerful standard to educate students on. And certainly the goal is not only to provide a strong trauma-informed response when incidents do occur. But I think all of us are reaching for preventing these incidents from occurring in the first place. And so where I think affirmative consent is very powerful is when you're doing training and education for students around what the standards are at your university or college. I think affirmative consent in our field is considered a best practice, um, one that has been adopted by more and more schools around the nation and so when we're talking to students about what does an affirmative, healthy sexual encounter look like, you can really talk about what that means and break that down.
2: It doesn't feel, though, that the the numbers have borne out success here. It seems as though sexual assault on college campuses is actually at least as big a problem or a bigger problem than it's ever been. Is that fair to say?
3: You know, I think that that's a really important thing for us to delve into and look at, What we know for sure is that in the wake of the amount of publicity and attention that has been drawn to this issue, much of it by students who are saying, pay more attention to this nationally, who have stood up and joined ranks with one another, there's been enormous attention to an issue that often goes silent and people don't talk about. So we are certainly seeing tremendous increases in reporting on college campuses, UConn included, I don't know that there's data to tell you that increased reporting equals increased incidents. I think increased reporting means increased people coming forward, feeling comfortable that they'll be supported, that their case will be investigated, that they'll get the help they need, like moving their residence hall room or changing a class schedule or changing an exam. So we see numerous people coming forward and increased people coming forward as a positive thing in the field and as a good development, that that people are talking about sexual violence we're talking on this radio show about sexual violence. We're talking in our state legislature. That is a huge development over the last few years. So we are seeing the numbers raise um, in terms of the statistics and reports. I don't, know, I don't know that anyone can say definitively whether that means there's more incidents occurring, um, but there's certainly more people coming forward and receiving support.
1: Did you want to jump in? I just wanted to say, you know, all of these crime statistics are public. And um, I think that a lot of institutions are worried that uh, seeing increased numbers of reports on college campuses or their particular campus might adversely affect uh, student enrollment. You know, parents might be looking at these statistics and thinking – um, this might not be a safe place to send my, send my, my kid, uh, but it's actually it 's counterintuitive. Um, I, I agree with what Elizabeth says. Um, schools that deal with these issues correctly and uh, forcefully and forthrightly um, will have higher incidences because reporting will be better. Um, and, so, um, and, and so I actually think that when you, when you look at statistics across institutions, you probably want to find uh, an institution where, where students feel comfortable coming forward if they feel uh, like there's, they've been assaulted. Kelly, okay. I'd like for you to weigh in on this and, and, and also really talk through, from
2: your standpoint, the practicality of this uh, type of affirmative consent being the standard on college campuses.
4: Sure. So just to piggyback on what the other two guests are saying, yes if individuals are feeling more comfortable to come forward with something extremely traumatic that's happened to them, really, that just speaks volumes about the environment that's being produced on campus. I think silence is a lot scarier and a lot more concerning than people coming forward about it. Um, But I can also see why people may find it alarming or see it as an increase in sexual assault and rape and sexual violence. Um, I think that We do need to start sooner. Um, Some people may say that affirmative consent, going from no means no to yes means yes, could be seen as six of one and half a dozen of the other. However, what I think it does do is, on a more community level, it kind of gives permission for us to start talking about it in a different way before um, people enter college or just before people enter into adulthood.
2: And I guess the point is, wouldn't you almost have to have that conversation before right. people enter into college? I mean, you're talking about a whole, a whole new set of rules. Many people are mm. out on their own for the very first time. They're learning how to right. do everything from get their own first meal yes. to know how to get to themselves up for class in the morning. There's a lot of things that you're having to learn. And here's something that really isn't part of our thought process until we then get to a college campus and the rules kind of change. I mean, it it really speaks volumes for why you need to start earlier.
4: Right. It, It challenges adults, not just educators, not just counselors, but it also challenges families to start talking about it sooner. This might be awkward for some. However, I think it's really important. It's a huge part of being a person is your sexuality. Um, we're, we're
2: talking today about uh, sexual assault and sexual violence on college campuses and, and just a little bit, even in, in high school and middle school. Uh, we're talking with uh, Kellen Kavanaugh, who's a clinical mental health counselor at Loomis Chafee. Uh, Elizabeth Conklin's here from the University of Connecticut. She's Title IX coordinator. And Greg Haddad is a state representative who has co-sponsored an affirmative consent bill. Uh, I just want to quickly uh, read a tweet here from Gideon's Trumpet. He's someone who tweets on legal issues quite a bit uh, at our program. He says... Uh, in in answer to the question that we posed at the top of the program, do affirmative consent laws go far enough? Uh-oh, he writes, these laws are dangerous and turn human interactions on their head. Um, I'm sure that you've heard from a lot of people uh, within the legislature and people without um, who are looking at legal changes like this and worrying about some of the unintended consequences. What are some of the legal worries that you have about a legal change like this, especially just narrowing it down to college campuses?
1: Sure, uh, well, first off, let me say that while our bill just deals with college campuses i mean i'm I'm in favor of having as broad a broader conversation as possible about this issue. Um, um, i don't think uh, I, mean, I think that we, have, we need to be careful as proponents of the legislation not to um, uh, to ensure to make to, to ensure that we are respectful of due process as well. All of our college campuses have systems in place. Um, for adjudicating these kinds of, quest- these kinds of questions. Um, and it's important for colleges and universities uh, to enforce this uh, definition um, well. Um, it, you know, we, we can't um, – uh, we, we can't, I can't say too much about, about, uh, about that. The, the colleges and universities I think by and large, especially in places uh, that have well-established Title IX offices like the University of Connecticut or Yale, um, have a long history of working with students to get to the bottom of disputes um, and I think um, while the rules there might be slightly different than what we see in the court system um, it's important for us to make sure that we're respectful of all of the parties um, as well. Um, well and I don't think yeah. this changes that.
2: But, but Elizabeth I know that you can't necessarily speak beyond what is happening at, at UConn but if it's, if it's difficult say for us to pass statewide laws and then have 169 different communities uh, have police forces that enforce those laws in a consistent way. It would seem almost impossible to be able to hold all the universities, uh, public and private, accountable in the same way. It is clear that every single university adjudicates uh, the problem of sexual violence on campus very, very differently. I mean, is that fair to say? And is is that a problem in in sweeping laws like this, given the fact that everyone's going to have different tools in the toolbox to actually adjudicate the problem?
3: You know, I think there are different systems in place across the nation at different colleges, but all colleges and universities are under the same legal framework from the federal government. Title IX is a federal law. It has very specific mandates through the Office for Civil Rights, around how to adjudicate these cases and what that should look like. And so the the structures might be different from school to school, but I would say that I think that there's um, a lot of similarities between how universities and colleges approach the matter. The recent OCR actions have really enforced that notion. For example, all colleges and universities are needing to be using the preponderance of the evidence standard That means decisions are made in cases based on whether it is more likely than not that something happened. That's very different than the criminal evidence standard, which is a much higher burden of proof. Um, So I think that there is a lot of guidance right now, very, very specific guidance from the federal government around Exactly how these cases should be handled at the college and university level when you're looking at it as a civil rights matter under Title IX, the federal law. What I think the state law does or seeks to do is to really um, go a little further than the federal law is currently doing to be an accessory to that and, and specify more specifically what the consent standards would look like, but
2: but, but from a you mentioned due process before. I mean, from a due process stand, standpoint, do you see a, a legal problem with preponderance of evidence being the standard on college campuses versus um, beyond the benefit, beyond the reasonable doubt being the standard in the rest of the world? I mean, is that something that we need to seriously look at in terms of the? Um, the the real ability to to bring a claim that may be very damaging to someone on a college campus?
3: Yeah, you know, there is certainly a lot of debate about that very question. And the preponderance of the evidence standard comes out of civil rights law, comes out of the jurisprudence around civil rights. And we have to keep in mind that a campus process is not criminal. So you have a much higher threshold at the criminal level because the punishment is much more severe. You're looking at potential incarceration. Not to at all minimize the potential punishment at a college or university, which is expulsion. That is very significant. But I think if you look at how colleges and universities adjudicate all sorts of matters, from sexual violence to plagiarism to drug matters, you're looking at cases that are being determined by a lower threshold because it's based on a student conduct code. And so when a sexual assault occurs on a college campus— two potential codes have been violated in the same incident, criminal law, but also the, the, the code of conduct at the school. And I think that complaining students and victims and survivors have the right and the option to pursue one, the other, or both.
2: We're talking today about sexual assault on college campuses. We're going to turn to high schools as well in a moment. If you want to join us at eight six zero we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today we're talking about methods uh, that are being attempted to stop the epidemic of uh, sexual violence on college campuses. It's something that we've talked about on the program before, and we're talking today with Greg Haddad, who is a state representative who has co-sponsored an affirmative consent bill. That's what we've been talking about in the first segment of the program. Elizabeth Conklin is here, Title IX coordinator at UConn. Kellen Kavanaugh, a clinical mental health counselor from Loomis-Chafee, we're going to be talking about this issue at the high school level in just a moment. I quickly want to get to Darcy, who's calling from Connecticut College. Hello there. You're on Where We Live.
5: Good morning, John. How are you? Good. What's up? Good. Um, I am the Director of Sexual Violence Prevention Advocacy at Connecticut College, and um, I'm really excited that you're all talking about this this morning because it's such an important topic. Um, And I just wanted to call in and talk a little bit um, and piggyback off of what Elizabeth was saying about education starting young. I think a lot of families get concerned about talking sex with uh, with their children when consent can be about anything. Um, I often talk about tickling. You know, when we tickle a four-year-old and they're often saying, no, no, stop, and we continue to do that, um, we're setting a precedence that what they're saying doesn't matter. Um, And so if we can think about and reframe how we um, interact with children and letting them know that their voices do matter and that they can say yes or no to things and that they have autonomy over their body is the stepping stones as we work our way into the college curriculum Um, I work with students during orientation every year, and we have a wide variety of backgrounds from what type of sex education students have had, healthy relationships, sexual boundaries, sexual assault, and sometimes nothing at all. Um, And so my other big thought is that not just having sort of the um, adjudication and the processing of these cases, but also making sure that we're having conversations around bystander intervention to really change the culture as as a whole so that talking about sexual assault becomes part of the norm. Um, We really try and make the work that we're doing at Connecticut College accessible and approachable for students so that it doesn't become this sort of taboo subject that we're only talking about when somebody gets in trouble, Um, and really thinking about what are some of the ways that we can all play a role in changing our community. And so we have a program called Green Dot um, that's been wildly successful on campus, um, and really having students understand that each one of us can play a role in um, ending the violence, whether it's on our college campuses and our high schools or elementary schools um, and our community as a whole.
2: Well, Darcy, thank you very much for your phone call. I I do appreciate it. And Kellen, I'd love for you to pick up on that a little bit and talk more uh, than we have in the first segment about uh, teaching about this at a younger age, because there's a whole whole lot of other issues that we can get into that are problematic about talking about this and teaching it at the high school level, say.
4: Um, I love the example of having a four-year-old being tickled and then their autonomy not being respected because technically it's play. But you know it does set the precedence that what you want to happen to your body doesn't matter. And then that could turn into, well, I don't have control over my body. Um, I think that right now the biggest challenge for educators and counselors, anyone working with minors really, is what we would call the hookup culture there's an entire spectrum of hooking up. It could be kissing, making out, um, and then it could go to the other end of the spectrum that ends up in any sort of penetration. So this is powerful for some students or some members of the youth because it gives them a um, wide variety of acts with under one umbrella that they can go tell their friends about and said, oh, you know, I, I hooked up with this person or I hooked up with that person. It leaves this, like, realm of mystery when, in fact, it can be very damaging because if somebody asks you, do you want to hook up, what are you getting into? Um, and I think that's where changing the language and educating individuals who are younger, um, you know, even on the middle school level and um, – you know, at four years old when it comes to tickling is, um, what do you want to have happen to your body? It doesn't have to be an awkward conversation, Um, you know, and it's also about asking what else you want done to your body and to the other person's body. So,
2: so, but there's this interesting legal question, though, too, that actually Mm -hmm. has to do with consent. Like, so when you're an adult, consent actually means something, and there's an age of consent, and there's an awful lot of things that, in, a, in American law, like eight-year-olds can't consent to that 18-year-olds can consent to. Can Correct. you talk about that legal definition and how that plays into the issue that you're talking about here?
4: Um, well, for instance, so in New York State, if you are under the age of 18, you cannot consent, period, even if your partner, say you're you know 15 years old, even if your partner's 15, um, neither party can give consent. Um, and I think that that's part of the issue because in a way um, – the laws are there to protect minors and for very good reason. But then at the same time, it kind of takes this power away that can be very confusing. Um, and I think it's confusing for the students. And then um, I know, you know, from my perspective, uh, it then falls into dealing with parents. So if I were to be told by somebody under the age of 18, you know, I think I was sexually assaulted um, or I thought somebody didn't um, – you know, adhere to what I ask to, I then have to speak with the parents about it. And that can actually deter um, these really precious reports that we need from people. Um, and I think that that's a huge challenge. And I think that it can be seen in how families talk about sex or don't talk about sex. Um, you know, maybe they talk about it as what we call sex positive or sex negative, Um and I think that that can really determine someone's future.
2: Um, I, I want to actually get to a new study that, that came out this month about sexual violence in K-12 students. And I know, Elizabeth, you, you, you know a bit about this. And I think it speaks to everything that we're talking about here, including what we might do in the future, not just on the legal level, but also on the education level.
3: Yeah. So um, a professor in our School of Education uh, compiled a research study based on prevalence and incident rates in Connecticut at the K-12 through level, really digging into what's happening before students come to college. We know, those of us on college campuses, including our caller, Darcy, that students come in with wildly divergent beliefs, backgrounds, and range of education, prior education on, on sexual activity um, based on the school systems or families. So and we also know, based on reports going back decades, that there is tremendous amount of sexual violence occurring before college, um, whether it's childhood sexual abuse by adults or peer-on-peer. Uh, the study really pointed to numbers in Connecticut demonstrating that students in grades 9 and 10 being particularly vulnerable. And I think a lot of us in the field um, see a need for there to be a conversation and prevention activities that makes sense starting as young as four around body autonomy, going up to the college level, but really drilling into the need to talk to students, I would say at the grade seven through 12 level, specifically about sexual activity, sexual autonomy, what consent looks like, and being able to have those conversations. And I think in Connecticut, we have a tremendous amount of good partners, including the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence, working very hard on just this. But we will see at the college level an impact if we really drill down into prevention and education at the K-12 through level before they come to college.
1: Um, you, go ahead. Yeah. So when we talk about um, our consent bill uh, for colleges and universities at college campuses, uh, oftentimes the students activists will tell us that we need to be starting earlier, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I'm proud to say that in 2014, the legislature also passed a bill um, that deals with creating a, a, a more comprehensive sexual assault uh, awareness program at K through in their K through 12 schools. Um, And so the Department of Children and Families and the the Department of Education, together with the Alliance to End Sexual Violence, have been working on guidelines uh, to provide to local boards of education um, for um, age-appropriate programming for our students. Um, And for – in the draft uh, of that – those guidelines, active consent is one of the things that they're talking about, embedding in the programs – um, for, uh, for younger students. That's, that's really important. And I, and I think um, it's both responsive to the things that we've heard about on campus and also that we know are needed in our schools.
2: Well, we just have two minutes left. And Kellen, I, I have to ask you about how social media has changed all of this and, and how big an issue that is right now on your campus and also moving forward into college.
4: Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, it, it makes all instances of pornography So much more accessible. It used to be that you had to raid your father's closet for a Playboy, which um, in the grand scheme of things, what's on the internet now that you can simply find by typing something into Google is um, on a whole other level. Um, Not just that, but social media. So the idea of Snapchatting to somebody else um, and you can Snapchat, you know, full frontal nudity or, you know, a picture of your genitals, it, it makes it more accessible But it also sort of puts this huge distance between social interactions. So most social interactions happen now via text while looking down at a phone screen, whereas they used to happen face to face. So we had a visitor at campus, um, Cindy Pierce, and she brought up the great point, you know, how are you going to read someone's body language? Um, at a party, at college, you know, when substances are probably involved, and you can't even do it in broad daylight on a Tuesday morning.
2: Yeah, the, the whole idea of reading these these signals, uh, we have heard over and over again. The kids just aren't learning. That's one more thing that they need to learn how to do. Um, Unfortunately, we've run out of time in this conversation. Kellen Kavanaugh from Loomis Chafee, Elizabeth Conklin from the University of Connecticut, Greg Haddad, state representative. Thank you all for this really excellent conversation. Coming up next, author Mia Fontaine tells her story about recovering from childhood sexual violence. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday, we'll be off for Martin Luther King Day, and we'll be presenting a documentary special in honor of Dr. King. I hope you can join us. Sexual abuse of children can have a profound effect on their lives for decades, and that's the story that Mia Fontaine chronicles in her book, Comeback, A Mother and Daughter's Journey Through Hell and Back. Told with her mother, Claire, the book tells the story of Mia's drug addiction and unusual treatment methods, all the way to her career success. She was recently in Hartford talking about her experiences at The Village, and she joined us in studio. Also with us was Yvette Young, a licensed professional counselor at The Village. Young also coordinates the state's human anti-trafficking response teams and provides oversight for the governor's task force on justice for abused children. Mia Fontaine and Yvette Young, welcome to Where We Live.
6: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Mia, I'd like to start with you, and maybe you can... First, tell us why you f- have felt it's so important for both you and your mother Claire, who who co-wrote the book with you, uh, to write about your experiences living with and overcoming abuse and then and then addiction.
6: My purpose in writing the book was twofold. I wanted to share my story to help other people struggling see that you can overcome it, no matter what your circumstances are. And I also felt it was important to speak out to help destigmatize child sexual abuse and incest in particular uh, as a means of hopefully helping to create awareness and social change.
2: How big a problem is stigma, do you think, in, in in all of this?
6: I think it's massive. I think child abuse, trafficking, incest is essentially almost the last frontier in terms of social issues. If you look at where we're at, um, you can bring up AIDS, rape, cancer, all of these issues that used to be completely swept under the rug But as soon as you say anything about, well, my dad sexually abused me or um, I was trafficked by by my mother, my cousin, people clam up. It makes them extremely uncomfortable. And so it's very difficult to have progress, to change the laws without that.
2: We've recently had a few conversations on our program uh, after the movie Spotlight came out uh, about um, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and some of the efforts by reporters to uncover this abuse. And a lot of the conversation there is about what happens when a person in a position of power puts himself in a position where he can abuse young boys and young girls. And there's all sorts of things that have to do with um, spirituality and have to do with your belief in God that were very, very damaging for many of those abuse victims. However, it is a very different thing, I would assume, than bringing up the word incest. Incest is something that is that is different, but for those of us who don't understand, explain how. How is it different than something where another powerful person in your life who is not a family member does these terrible things?
6: I think there's something that just makes people so physically and emotional, un, emotionally uncomfortable with that when it's your own flesh and blood. It's almost like people grow their own victims. To me, what was so interesting about the clergy abuse case and I saw spotlight is that we're increasingly coming out with father figures, people who are parental in their role, you know, paternal, the coaches, Sandusky, all of the father figures, that's a step in the right direction because that's really – that hit home for people. But it's still more palatable than somebody that's actually blood-related.
2: And obviously, it's not it's not the same as an entire faith being shaken and mm-hmm. a cover up that goes in this case all the way to the Vatican, but there are cover ups in families, and Absolutely. there's a cover up in your family. And can you talk about that because that's Absolutely. that's indeed what you're overcoming in, in part?
6: Yeah, certainly. So in in my case in particular, my father was sort of a pillar of the community. You know, there's there is no such thing as an obvious pedophile. He was well-traveled, charismatic. You know, when I first came forward, I was extremely lucky in that my mother, no questions, believed me, which is not how it happens most of the time. When kids are brave enough to come forward, a lot of times they are just told, <laughs> you go right back to to hiding, to being quiet. And then she was completely vilified. Like, how could you do this to such a nice man? The the first thing that people think about is the well-being of the father. Well, this could destroy his reputation. She's little. She'll grow up. She'll forget about it. So there isn't just a cover-up within the immediate family, but then the extended family and the community. I can't tell you, my mother, when she took me to the pediatrician, he thought he, he was the same thing, and the judge. It's very much, you have to think about how this will damage this man's life, and there is just not that same concern for the child.
2: I, Yvette, I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit, too, because the as we want to turn the focus to the victims, the children in these cases— i think Mia is so right. We often first start by talking about the adults that's you know, adults tend to worry about other adults um adults, but this is a case in which it's really truly damaging when when the whole conversation is about what will this do to the family, what will it do to to the man who commits the acts?
0: yeah, and I think you know what Mia said is is definitely accurate most of the time it's not dealt with because. Uh, it's about protecting, as you said, either the father, the uncle, the whomever the perpetrator is. And then there's the financial issues. I think sometimes we've seen, and I've worked in sexual assault previously, for four years, you'll see mothers who will make the decision not to disclose, not to, to get services for the child, because if I get rid of my husband, who's going to take care of us as a family, right? So then it's about survival. So it's like, as Mia is rightly saying, you're a child, you grow up, you'll get through this, but the family won't survive if we lose our the income that's coming in through whoever that caretaker is. Or if I shame you know, this particular family member, then the entire family may sort of get rid of us. And a lot of people are afraid of losing those relationships. And bonds.
2: The other important part of your story, Mia, is the self destructive behaviors that you began to engage in at an early age. Because you were so young, were you able to make the connection that you were acting out by using drugs, uh, self mutilating, because of the result of the sexual, tra- sexual trauma that you went through?
6: No, I wasn't. And because of that, I actually wondered if I was having hallucinations and becoming schizophrenic. I thought I was going crazy. And what happens is when when trauma happens to a child, it actually the the part of your brain that processes fear and stress becomes hyperactive. It's much like a soldier during war with PTSD. And that part of the brain doesn't shrink back. So to some degree, you always process things as a traumatized kid would. And what happened was when I turned thirteen, you hit adolescence, your body's changing, you start thinking about boys differently, and that threw me for a loop. And so I would suddenly wake up with my old nightmares again. I would feel like I wasn't in my body anymore, like I was watching myself, I would have the desire to just not be in my skin. And so, you know, I, I didn't, and nor did my parents. Most people particularly then don't realize the long-term effects, particularly on a neuro and biological level. So I do think if, if I had known that or if my mom had been told, you know, hey, this is totally normal for somebody with her background, I wouldn't have felt like I was going completely crazy.
2: And what were the ways in which you were acting out, the ways in which you were you were harming yourself because of what had happened to you?
6: I started with self-mutilating, so cutting myself. And, and that's something that's, I, I think it's something like one in 15 girls cuts herself um, and boys as well. So it started with that and then smoking pot, from there getting into heavier drugs, from there losing interest in school, pushing away. I had a really nice group of friends and my my mom, my stepdad, but when you're struggling, particularly when it's something that you don't understand, it can almost be painfully uncomfortable to be around people that care about you because they see you as you were, they see you as you are, and you're just so confused and out of control. It was easier for me to want to be around junkies or dropouts or people that had no expectations of me, that felt as screwed up as I did. If you're in a more, quote unquote, normal environment, the least normal you feel or The less normal you feel, the more you want to be around people who you can identify with more.
2: How typical is this pattern of behavior that Mia talks about, going into self-mutilation, into drugs, and then into heavier drugs because of the results of of sexual abuse?
0: Uh, It's extremely typical, and um, every individual is different, and their um, response to the trauma is different. But what she described is pretty norm, the sense of self-mutilation. identification. So what is my value? What's my worth? The dissociation features that she talked about wanting to be out of her skin, not wanting to deal with the reality that this has happened to me. And then also the fear of how others are going to view you, right? So, you know, what she's describing is very typical of, you know, if I tell my truth to someone, I tell my story, how are they going to look at me? How are they going to perceive me? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to ridicule me? Are they going to have a body or facial expression that lets me know that they can't handle hearing that? So now I have to retreat and withdraw because you're not a safe person for me to really share this with. The impact, the lifelong impact is so tremendous, and I think people really miss that. You're having someone who, especially, in her case, who's victimized by a primary caretaker. This is the person who's supposed to help you find and discover who you are to teach you and to guide you, and they victimize you. They've shown you that adults are not safe people. And so how do I trust? How do I build healthy relationships when the primary relationship that was supposed to teach me was destroyed? And I think people don't think enough about that for children, that they're learning, they're developing, they're growing. So when adults violate them, that changes their worldview. It changes their feelings of safety.
2: So, so how do you begin to build then that trust back up in, in kids who have been violated in this way?
0: I think that's where when you have really good clinical intervention, when you have really good support system, when you have families that believe them, being present, validating, someone's reality, letting them know that it wasn't their fault. And I have to emphasize that it's not their fault that they were victimized, being present in that way, being supportive in that way, um, helping them to change their cognition about how they see themselves, because their view of themselves now has changed. They're not good, that something is wrong with them. What made someone do this to me? So when you have adults uh, that come in and say, you're worthy, you are valuable. It was not your fault. We're here to support you. No matter how long it takes, I'll be present for you. That can heal and that can change.
2: I want to get in a moment, Mia, to, to what ended up working for you. But I want to stop first at a very unusual chapter in which you're you're essentially sent away to a place in, in the Czech Republic that is meant to, in, I assume, cure you of the the self-destructive behaviors that you've been engaging in. Can you tell us about this, This, I guess I can only say, bizarre <laughs> chapter in your life?
6: Sure, absolutely. My mother had been at a complete loss. I'd been in and out of rehab, the psych ward, traditional therapy, and alternative school. And it really was just by sheer accident that she heard about a school that was – it was a therapeutic boot camp school of sorts. And at that point, she would have sent me to Mars if she thought that it could save me. And I was arrested around that time for felony drug charges – So the judge, my mom, made a strong case for the school because she spoke to the parents that were there. It did sound extreme, but a lot of the methods they used made sense. Um, And she spoke with some of the kids that were there. So she decided that let's give it a go. It also – my grandmother is from that part of the world. And so it didn't feel quite as foreign as it might have. But there were a couple things happening. Um, One, it is illegal in most states to hold a kid against their will for more than 72 hours if you don't have some sort of legal authority otherwise. So a lot of times you'll go into rehab or when I was picked up one time and put in the psych ward, three days later you can sign yourself out. So there are only certain states in America where you can do that. And also the cost was a lot lower. It's exorbitantly expensive. Insurance doesn't cover it. So it was – it was sort of like a, a Hail Mary pass, if you will. Mm-hmm. So so there were a, f- a few things that this program did differently. And one was just the length. You know, a lot of things are shorter term. You don't go through 15 years of operating one way and change in three months. It takes a long time often. So it was just the, the sheer length of the program, I think, that was one element. We were on silence most of the time. And the only time we were allowed to speak was in group therapy, which we had every single day. And what happens is when day after day, month after month, you're on silence, you actually have the first time in many years for me where you connect with yourself. You have no choice. We were cut off from the outside world. You start to hear your own thoughts again to remember what feeling feels like. And because of the daily therapy, in, trauma recall is a huge problem. Before you can move on from something, you have to be able to talk about it. And that means reliving these horrible experiences. So how do you get kids to do that? And by seeing other people talk about this kind of stuff, other I didn't even speak about it for about four months. But just the daily hearing other people, it makes you realize this isn't the shameful secret that nobody can talk about. It doesn't have to be in, you know, whispers to a therapist here and there, like it happens. There's an expression we used to hear like, rocks are hard, water is wet, you were abused, so what now what? You know, and, and with time that might sound a bit harsh. Um, but in in seeing this, and you could also see that these are girls that came in just as bad as I was, and you'd see them open up and move on and become happier, and that has an effect on you.
2: When you hear uh, Mia talk about the, the, this type of program, Yvette, what, what do you think of and, and how do you think it jives with some more traditional treatment programs that you may be familiar with here in the States?
0: I think, yet again, and I have to emphasize the individuality of each individual and what they need and desire. I think here in the United States, I don't think we have anything as probably extreme as what she experienced, and that was years ago, right? Because, you know, there's mandates and standards, and you can only do certain things. But I think residential programs is a bit of what she's talking about. Group home settings um, would cover a lot of what she's talking about, being in an environment that is secure, that you can do daily clinical work. Um, And then there's the outpatient supports and services that are also offered to victims of uh, child abuse. So I think it depends on the individual what their needs are, how severe their issues are. Um, will dictate what treatment modality is prescribed for that individual. But I think what she's describing makes sense. You need to be in a safe place where you're being held accountable, where you're being asked to do the work. Um, And my position on doing trauma work is, you know, when the person is ready, the work will occur, right? But not to force it because you can re-traumatize someone by forcing them to talk about an abuse that they've, you know, sort of suppressed for years. But you can deal with the behaviors that are a manifestation of that trauma, right? So if you're doing substances you can do detox and go through treatment you know if you're cutting you can do work on that so work on what you see is interfering with their ability to function in society and don't you don't necessarily need to know the narrative right away to be able to help them with that work Uh,
2: obviously something we talk about on our program an awful lot is is policies regarding how to deal with uh young people who are in crisis situations and funding for things like group home programs Often, in this state, we we talk about the behavior being maybe criminal behavior, Mm -hmm. um, having drug offenses or worse offenses, but then having to actually go in and deal with the underlying causes and the problems. And sometimes the harsher, uh, more criminally focused programs aren't as good at that. Could you just talk for a moment about about that that piece of this? Because when I talk to policymakers, I sometimes wonder if people understand exactly um, the deep psychological trauma that many of these kids go through to get to the point where they may be uncontrollably difficult individuals Mm -hmm. that the state has to take care of.
0: No, I think you make a valid point, And I think it's hard. I think, you know, when you think of public safety, right, and you think of safety for the child, and then, you know, people are making decisions to institutionalize or put them in detentions, facility, or jail, etc. You're right, it's like they're missing the bigger picture and the core cause of why that child because children who don't have that level of trauma don't be, react and behave in that way. So there's always a reason and a cause. And so having more treatment focused, um, support. So even if you have to put a child in detention or you have to, you know, put them in a program per se, what is the work that you're doing so that they can be rehabilitated to come back into the community and be able to be that safe participating um, individual? And it's hard, but I think it's about funding and supporting, you know, clinical services and supports and treatment because these are children. I said it before. They're developing, you know, the human brain for women don't develop until their twenties for men in their thirties. So these are children who are still learning and they're functioning on impulse and they're functioning on experiences that were already traumatic experiences. Their norm is not the regular norm. And so people sometimes forget to understand that they're still learning and they're still growing. And if you're going to, you know, put them away per se, then make sure that you're building them and, you know, giving them the skills that they need to be successful after that experience.
2: Me, M- when you talk to people like like you will at the village uh, later today, what, what do you tell people about your story that you hope that they will take away to um, to maybe make some sort of positive action in the world?
6: I think it's twofold. I think that one is just education and awareness. I mean, anything, even government funding, a lot of times that comes from public pressure. So people have to understand – I think the number one thing we could do to, to lower crime rates in this country, to lower the rate of people on the streets, in prisons, in rehabs, is to address child abuse head on. That is the underlying cause between almost all of those. So for people to really get – like this impacts all of society. It's not just a poor you know kid and let's get them the help they need so maybe they'll graduate from high school and be clean. It's about creating a stronger society. And the other thing is that I think with the right kind of help and treatment, kids that have been abused can actually become one of America's biggest assets. You can almost become superhuman because while your brain is developing with this kind of different treatments and cognitive therapies and talk therapy, you learn about yourself at an age when most people don't start thinking about their purpose or how do they want to feel and who do they want to be until their 30s, 40s, 50s. So also, I think getting people to see that these are kids that, with the right help, have a very unique potential to create real social change and to not just see them as, you know, somebody, let's help them get back on their feet.
2: Mia Fontaine and Yvette Young, thank you both so much for coming in. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you. Mia Fontaine is a public speaker and creative strategist. She's also co-author of Comeback, A Mother and Daughter's Journey Through Hell and Back, and the book Have Mother Will Travel. Yvette Young is a licensed professional counselor at The Village in Hartford. She also coordinates the state's human anti-trafficking response teams and provides oversight for the governor's task force on justice for abused children. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tularski. You can always find out more about our show at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Where We Live.